This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, September 10th, 2010. I'm Caleb Brown. How did we get to the president of today, a president who commands a bully pulpit and claims powers never dreamed of in the Constitution? Gene Healy, a vice president at the Cato Institute and author of The Cult of the Presidency, recently discussed the problematic modern presidency at Cato University on Capitol Hill. So what happened to the to bring about this transformation, to to create a situation in which the, uh, all of the energy, all of the oxygen in the room and most of the constitutional powers have ended up in the hands of the executive branch. Um, one of my colleagues at Cato, John Samples, who I think many of you heard from last week, uh, insists that whenever you see a problem with the current American system of government, and you're looking for someone to blame, you're pretty safe blaming the progressives of the early 20th century. And that's certainly true in, the, in this case. Uh, Herbert Crowley, the first editor of the New Republic, uh, described Teddy Roosevelt as a, a sledgehammer in the cause of national righteousness. And that perfectly captures the progressive view of the presidency. Uh, the progressives quite openly opposed the framer system of checks and balances and the small r Republican norms that kept the president from being a, a dynamic populist leader. Uh, for the progressives, it was a president's job to move the masses, to unite them behind calls for more executive power and to, to, to cede those powers in order that, that they could carry out the necessary reforms. Uh, the smartest of the progressives recognized that you couldn't change American political culture without a sustained atmosphere of crisis. Uh, so many of them, including Crowley and John Dewey, uh, welcomed the arrival of World War I, which Crowley said would give Americans the tonic of a serious moral adventurer. Um, Framers had a different view of war. Uh, the, in Federal Estate, the, we read that uh, it is of the nature of war to increase the executive at the expense of, of the legislative authority. And Madison called war the true nurse of executive aggrandizement. Uh, so, it's no, so war is the health of the presidency. It's no accident that as the uh, presidency has grown, presidents have used the metaphors of war to expand their, their uh, powers in areas that have nothing to do with national security. War on poverty, war on drugs. In fact, FDR is a famous, uh, everybody remembers the one famous quote from FDR's first inaugural. You know, we, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. Uh, but what they don't remember is, unless they've read the speech recently, is that the speech is full of military metaphors and a collectivist longing for a unified country that moves like a, like a, a trained and loyal army. Uh, FDR said, if we are to go forward, we must move as a trained and loyal army willing to sacrifice for the good of a common discipline because without such discipline, no progress is made, no leadership becomes effective. We are, I know, ready and willing to submit our lives and property to such discipline because it makes possible a leadership that aims at a larger good. Uh, I think those are fairly disturbing sentiments, and maybe we shouldn't look at that speech with the, uh, the warmth 
and romanticism that we often seem to. FDR, as a transformative president, also wanted to ensure that Americans would look to the president to provide services that had, until that time, never been thought to be the proper role of the federal government. Uh, one of his early firesides, in one of his early fireside chats, he urged Americans to tell me your troubles, and they did. There's a guy named Ira Smith, uh, an interesting article in a, a political science journal about this, a guy named Ira Smith who was head of the White House Mail Service for five decades, beginning in the McKinley administration. And during the Taft administration, Smith uh, ran the shop all by himself. He got about 200 letters a week. But early on in FDR's first term, after these appeals to tell me your troubles, uh, he got over 5,000 and soon found that he needed 50 people to answer all the requests for help. By the end of FDR's 12-year reign, uh, the transformation of the president from the, the framer's modest chief magistracy to uh, the, the image of the president as a benevolent father protector uh, is, is completely accomplished. Uh, the U.S. government had become, as the political scientist Theodore Lowy put it, an inverted pyramid with ev everything coming to rest on a presidential pinpoint. I said that progressives were largely responsible for this transformation, but uh, surprisingly enough, conservatives uh, had a huge role to play here as well. In the early days of uh, the modern presidency, at the end of the FDR uh, administration, uh, this wasn't the way conservatives really looked at the presidency. Uh, conservatives in Congress championed the 22nd Amendment, limiting presidential terms, and the intellectuals who gathered around William F. Buckley's National Review in 1955 were almost, to a man, opponents of the powerful presidency. They thought they, they associated the presidency with new deals and new frontiers, um, great societies, uh, and they, they resisted this vision. But I have a section in my book that's called How Conservatives Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Imperial Presidency. Uh, and it talks about how conservatives came to abandon their original heritage of skepticism toward presidential power. Uh, there are a couple things there. There was, uh, I think, one of, one, of the, one of the things that was so instrumental in this transformation of the conservative movement was the notion that the electoral college uh, would, be, would permanently guarantee a Republican uh, would, would permanently guarantee a Republican majority, that the presidency would more often than not end up in Republican hands. This, drove, this, this opportunity drove, drove conservatives to view the presidency as an ally, and uh, they, they saw the presidency in the presidency a way for uh, conservatives to use the bully pulpit to counter what they saw as a liberal media and to use the powers of the presidency to shrink regulation. Um, it seems to me that, uh, that those ideas are not working out very well today. But more than anything else, I think when we're looking for someone to blame for the shape that the modern presidency has taken, it's worth looking in the mirror 
uh, rather than blaming particular into intellectual elites or even sillier, blaming particular presidents. There's a, a common narrative about the, the extravagant claims of, of constitutional power, that, uh, of presidential power that George W. Bush made during, uh, during his administration. Uh, and the conventional narrative says that there was an ideological cabal uh, within the administration, neoconservatives who had for years sought to enhance the powers of the presidency. And one reason that's the dominant conventional narrative is that, well, there's a lot of truth to it. But I think it ignores the role of public demands, these irrational, uh, exaggerated demands for, perf for perfect safety that have driven some of the, the, the more ambitious claims of presidential power that uh, the Bush administration made, claims such as the, uh, the idea that the president could arrest an American citizen on American soil uh, and lock him up in a military brig for the duration of the war on terror, which could be forever. Uh, that's a staggering claim, and that was the claim that was made during the, uh, with the Jose Padilla case. Why, did, uh, why, why were these claims made? It wasn't just about ideology, I'd submit to you. There's a book by Jack Goldsmith, who was uh, at one point the head of the, uh, the administration's Office of Legal Counsel, uh, and he often jousted with David Addington, Dick Cheney's lieutenant, um, in, his, in his role there. And uh, he says at one point in this book that the reason that, even though he disagreed with Addington, he, he understood the reason that he was so unrelenting. He believed that presidential power was coextensive with presidential responsibility. Since the president would be blamed for the next homeland attack, he must have the power under the Constitution to do what he deemed necessary to stop it, regardless of what Congress said. Uh, and I think uh, the, the, that notion that presidential power is coextensive with presidential responsibility, and that these public and, and that the president will be held accountable for something that no one political figure could possibly stop in a nation of, of 300 million people. I think that explains why so little of the Bush terror presidency has been changed from one administration to the next, despite the fact that civil libertarians look to Barack Obama to carry out a fundamentally different approach with some of the imperial presidency issues that, uh, that arose during the Bush administration. What Obama has essentially delivered is the same old imperial presidency with new, hopier rhetoric. There, there's a less stark and unilateralist tone to the administration's pronouncements in this area, but people on both sides of the aisle who know what they're talking about will tell you that, in substance, the Obama approach to the war on terror and the, the claims that are being made are virtually the same. Gene Healy is a vice president at the Cato Institute and author of The Cult of the Presidency. You can get your free ebook copy at Cato.org.